So if the emergence of the Omicron variant uh, taught us anything, and we've been hearing about it ever since it did emerge, was vaccine inequity, right? We've been told over and over, if we don't get the whole planet vaccinated, there's no way this is going to end. Um, But think about what happened, because we were starting to focus on getting the whole world vaccinated. And then when Omicron came on, uh, a lot of the rich countries started talking more about getting their populations boosted. And a lot of people said, well, you've completely abandoned what you need to do here. And um, it, 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 it's true if you take a look at it. So can we do both? Can, can we um, put attention to where this needs to be done? You know, we're still fighting legal battles to try and release the patents on some of these vaccines so we can increase production and distribution around the world. Crazy thing here is not all that long ago, we fought a very similar battle or battles uh, in trying to handle another epidemic, HIV AIDS. So to draw out those comparisons and parallels and, you know, what we can learn from them, we're going to have a chat now with Uche Nguaba, who is an assistant professor at Ryerson University's Lincoln Alexander School of Law. Uche, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me, Shay. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you know, when we when we talk about this, it really is, you know, when I was reading your, your piece on this, the parallels are really quite striking, aren't they, between the way this epidemic is being handled versus HIV AIDS back, you know, 20, 30 years ago. That's correct. That's correct. Um, indeed, you see, we seem to be repeating the same mistakes with the HIV AIDS pandemic in terms of our reluctance to engage uh, and collaborate across uh, borders and to see the epidemic as one that challenges uh, human solidarity. And so uh, we seem to be making the very same mistakes we made with the HIV pandemic, and that is really uh, disappointing. Yeah, and not just once, not just initially, Uche, not like when this started and we said, okay, uh, we talked a lot about global vaccination, but it was all focused on, you know, the Northern Hemisphere. And then when Omicron came out, we sort of abandoned anything that we had been doing in terms of global vaccination, and once again... The Northern Hemisphere, the richer countries said, well, let's get boosters in first. So, I mean, we're not learning at all here. That is, that is actually what is most surprising about this. And you know what, Shane? Um, the, the very foundation of international public health has always been you know, uh, embedded in this idea of solidarity. If you look back into framing instruments, even in terms of the constitution of the World Health Organization that uh, came about in 1946, as far back as 1946, it was clear that for us to take global action in any uh, health challenge that affects the whole of humanity, we need to come together, we need solidarity. So this idea of solidarity has always been there from the outset. But you know, what happens with saying one thing and doing the other thing is what we see uh, manifesting with, of course, the Omicron uh, situation and how it is being dealt with uh, by uh, health institutions, global health institutions and global, global health governance frameworks. But in addition, by countries in the global north, who should take leadership? Because by virtue of being uh, more advanced societies, they are privileged to have access to certain technologies and know-how that if deployed in the spirit of global cooperation and solidarity, will help humanity to make progress in lockstep. And you see, the challenge is there's no way uh, you can talk about making progress with overcoming Omicron if every aspect of the world it's not also making progress because we're so interconnected, you know. Um, uh, if Canada is boosting its populations, but then you still have uh, populations in Guinea-Bissau who haven't been vaccinated, then the likelihood is that a mutation in Guinea-Bissau is likely to come into Canada 
and it's going to affect whatever progress the things have made. Yeah, we've seen that play out repeatedly. Um, The other one I wanted to ask you about, Uche, is uh, in terms of, you know, the legal battles that have been waged around these vaccines, are there parallels with that and how we handled things back during HIV AIDS? Were there the same sort of legal battles over medications and treatments and therapeutics and things like that? And how were they resolved then? Uh, you see, it comes down to, and you're correct about the legal battles, uh, it comes down to this idea of intellectual property rights, uh, the patterns around uh, medicines and vaccines. Global North countries where the big pharmaceutical companies are located are always uh, uh, very conscious about protecting their intellectual property rights because they want to make p- commercial profits out of their innovations and inventions. And of course, for good reason, they should make profit from whatever they innovate on. But you see, when we're dealing with an emergency, there is a need to temporarily suspend or waive some of these patent rights or these intellectual property rights to allow us to deal with the emergency. Just the same way that when we have an an issue of public emergency in the states, we suspend certain rules to allow us to deal with the public emergency and then we resume uh, those rules. And so what we're seeing with the patents and uh, the intellectual property rights uh, patent and all of that that have to do with uh, the inventions that allow us to deal with COVID is that because we are dealing with a, such an uh, international uh, issue of uh, concern, there is need for us to waive those rights. Right. We're not asking you to give up your rights. We're asking that you waive those rights to allow us to come up with solutions, urgent solutions to deal with the, the pandemic. And then you can resume having those rights. This situation happened with, with the HIV AIDS pandemic. It took uh, activism and mobilization uh, by uh, South Africa under Nelson Mandela, mobilizing countries uh, to protest uh, this regime to allow South Africa to deal with the pandemic because then the HIV AIDS uh, pandemic, uh, pandemic was quite a big problem for South Africa. And so uh, the fact that we have made progress in the HIV AIDS, in bringing HIV AIDS under manageable limits. It's because those decisions were taken. It's because those waivers were made. And we're saying, do we have to go through the same fight again right. to be able to make progress with COVID? That's the question. Yeah. Can, can we not learn from what we did last time? Now, you also mentioned there, if you're the companies, you can understand we're talking about a lot of money here. So if you're going to ask correct. them to waive that, they should be financially compensated. And that would make this a lot easier process. Well, it is within, it is within uh, the means of global, global North countries to pick sure. up some of the slack. That's the question. That's the thing. Um, and then the question then becomes, why should global North countries even bother about doing so? Isn't, isn't that uh, essentially uh, putting them in a severe position of disadvantage? But look, stay with me for a moment, Shane. Now, since the COVID pandemic began, um, two, three years ago. How much do you think has been lost in terms of economic uh, right. uh, uh, potential growth or progress for countries that are all over the world, including global north countries? I tell you, it is in trillions of dollars. Sure. So when you do the opportunity costs of making waivers and having some immediate minor disadvantage financially compared to having your entire economy going down the drain because of a prolonging pandemic. What yeah. do you think is the better choice to make? It, 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 so, I mean, the numbers are pretty self-explanatory, aren't they, Uche? Of course. It's, it's, it's something that even befuddles the mind why we can't even see the simple logic behind it. But then 
the reactions of uh, many of the states in the global, global north, and when I mean the global north, I mean the developed nations of the world, the reactions of some of the states is befuddling. It's, it's mind-numbing because you see how it, 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 you, you, you essentially are squandering your future uh, opportunity for recovery because when you insist on just protecting your interests, yeah. When you insist on just protecting your population without uh, looking across the border to see how other countries are doing, then what happens is that your opportunity to recover never comes, or you are essentially postponing your opportunity to recover from the pandemic. And so we will continue to have the uh, shutdowns, uh, the lockdowns, the suspension of activities, economic yeah. activities going on, so long as we continue to have the, uh, the pandemic prolonged. And so it's, it's common sense economics yep. to make the immediate sacrifice now so that we can ensure that in the next one or two years, we are free of the pandemic and can resume normal economic activities. Yeah, Uche, you're right. It is common sense. It makes perfect sense. Um, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I really appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. Thank you very much. Um, thank you. Uche Nguaba, an assistant professor at Ryerson University's Lincoln Alexander School of Law. Thank you so much.